The Old Testament reading this morning is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 13, reading verses 1 to 5, and that's to be found on page 139 of your few Bibles. As we read from the Scriptures this morning, may we be mindful that this is the, the living word from the one only living and true God, and may he grant us clear understanding of the nature of his word. So, reading from Deuteronomy 13, starting at verse 1. If a prophet, or one who foretells by dreams, appears among you and announces to you in a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, Let us follow other gods, gods you may have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. reading for this morning is taken from the first letter of John, um, chapter 4 from verses 1 to 6, and this can be found on page 870 of the Pew Bible, John chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. May God bless his reading to our way.
Good, well do, uh, do please keep your Bibles open at 1 John, and as always I'm going to ask the Lord to open up his word to us. Our loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for giving us the scriptures, uh, which are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ask that as we together this morning search this particular part of your holy word, that you would reveal to our hearts and minds its meaning, uh, its significance, and its application for our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, um, in the book of Revelation, um, Jesus, as I think you know, sends a number of letters to seven churches in the area that today we call uh, Turkey. And he finds something positive to say about each one of them, um, with just one exception. But so this week I came across something that I hadn't actually noticed before. Uh, I'd never actually noticed that Jesus rebukes two of these churches for being too tolerant. I think that's rather striking, of course, because today Christians are under increasing pressure, aren't they, to, um, to become more tolerant of other faiths and of other world views. And yet when we come to the New Testament, uh, what we find is that Jesus is firmly pulling us back the other way. For example, to the church in Thyatira, uh, Jesus says in Revelation 2.20, you don't need to look it up, he says this, um, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Uh, by her teaching, she misleads my servants. So apparently uh, this church had given its pulpit to a woman and her teaching was leading Christians astray. Uh, of course, many churches are dealing with precisely that problem 2,000 years later. But what is so striking, or at least what struck me this week, is that Jesus directs his first word of rebuke to the Christians in the congregation rather than to the false teacher. He does rebuke the false teacher, but he doesn't start there. Quite clearly, Jesus is not impressed with gullible Christians. Christians who accept what they hear or what they read without thinking. Christians who will listen to practically any teaching as long as it draws a good crowd. I wonder if perhaps that's something that our generation needs to hear again today. Uh, a generation ago, uh, the Beatle George Harrison wrote a song called My Sweet Lord. Uh, if you're old enough, uh, you might remember it's got a rather catchy tune. What you may not remember is that at the time, the, the knee-jerk reaction amongst many Christians was, isn't that absolutely marvellous that uh, George Harrison's become a Christian? But of course that reaction was hopelessly naive because these Christians never listened to the chorus. The chorus tells us that the Lord that George Harrison thought was so marvellously sweet uh, wasn't actually Jesus. 
it was the, the Hindu god Krishna. Now, is our generation any less gullible, I wonder? Uh, I think most of you know that there are thousands of people gathering in churches this morning who are being told that basically God exists for their success and happiness. And they will sit there and they will believe it and that's a problem. That's a problem. Uh, A few years ago, an American pastor called Calvin Miller uh, wrote a, a satirical book about this. It's called The Philippian Fragment. Um, The book pretends to be a first century document of life in the early church. But it's actually poking gentle fun at gullible Christians in every age and especially our own. Uh, In the book, the author imagines himself back in the first century. And there's a place where he says this. One week ago, as I passed through the market... A voice interrupted my thoughts. The voice had a bugle-like quality and it gathered a rather impressive crowd of men around it. I could tell by their wrinkle-free togas that they were all merchants with an eye to the future. The name of the speaker was being whispered all about me with great respect. He was Marcus Sparkus, an up-and-coming Christian motivator. He's written 32 scrolls now with such titles as The Impossible Possibility, This Way to Success, The Zeal Deal, and the ever-popular You Are Numerous Eunice. In the first session, he tells his eager listeners that God is on their side. In the second, that God has given us all people and all things for our use to make us richer, happier Christians. In seminar three, he tells us how we can pray for our enemies and so triumph over guilt, live a devoted life and become wealthy. I decided to take the course feeling it might help my already successful ministry. But just as I was working out my chart for the future and recording my life action goals, there was a knock at the door and I learned that the authorities had arrested Sparkus and hauled him off to be thrown to the lions. It left the class unsettled. Now we aren't sure how to make our life action goals harmonise with the difficulties of life. Now that's right, isn't it? It's so familiar. And yet, of course, it's not new. It's not new. The Apostle John was dealing with almost the same issue 2,000 years ago. We've already seen, I think, that in this section of the letter, John is, is teaching his readers to distinguish between true and false Christianity. He's taught us that true Christianity is characterised by truth, holiness and love. But John knows that fake Christianity can sometimes produce convincing imitations of these things. And if the church is going to thrive and grow, we need the discernment to recognise these fakes and the wisdom to respond appropriately.
Now this morning, uh, the issue is truth. And what John has to say, I think, is very much a word for us. Because the assault on the truth is probably the greatest single danger facing the church in the West today. As one writer puts it, the real danger facing the church is not unbelief, but wrong belief. Not irreligion, but heresy. Not the doubter, but the deceiver. Yes, wherever there are living churches, men like Marcus Sparkus are never very far away and the crowds are flocking to listen to them. So the question is, how can you and I protect ourselves against them? Well, John tells us to do three things. You can follow these on the inside of the bulletin. The first is we must admit the threat. We admit the threat. Come with me to verse 1 of the passage. Dear friends, says John, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, it's not often, is it, that you go to church on Sunday morning and the man in the pulpit tells you not to believe something. Very unexpected, but that's actually what John is doing here. Uh, Last week in chapter 3, verse 23, he was positively urging us to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. But now he's saying, do not believe every spirit. Now what's he saying? Uh, And why is he talking about spirits rather than people? Well, the answer, I think, is that he's trying to get us to think about the origin of the teaching. So John Stott, in his commentary, puts it very well. He says, behind every prophet or Bible teacher is a spirit. And behind every spirit, either God or the devil. And so, you see, John is telling us that we've got to learn how to look behind the appearance of things. And we need to discern what's really happening. Whether it's the Christian books we read, the church we attend, the podcasts we listen to, if we're not going to be gullible, we've got to figure out who is behind the message. Is it God or is it the devil? Now that's an important question, I think, because you see, the devil is so terribly deceptive. He doesn't come along to you and me and say, look, have I got an absolutely whopping great lie for you today? No, he comes along and he says something like this. He says, look, I know what you've been taught, but I have to tell you that it's associated with And quite frankly, if you believe that stuff, you're ignorant. You're still living in the 19th century. Now, I can introduce you to some sophisticated people who believe something just a little different. Uh, Here's this marvellous book to help you. Uh, It's called All Roads Lead to Heaven. And it's written by somebody who does his devotions in Greek in the morning and Hebrew at night. I mean, you can't get anybody more spiritual than that, can you? 
Please read it and, and just let me know what you think. The point is that the devil's attempt to loosen our hold on the truth is indirect. And because it usually sounds so plausible and attractive, it's not always easy to detect. And so John says to us this morning, instead of accepting everything passively, unthinkingly, test the spirits. But who's he talking to? I mean, who's supposed to be doing the testing? Surely we can depend on our leaders to do it for us, can't we? Well, maybe. Um, No doubt the the bishops, the elders and the pastors have a real responsibility to be doing this and Jesus will hold us accountable for doing it properly. But John isn't actually talking to them. Now, in verse 1, notice, it's his dear friends. And in verse 4, it's his dear children. And we've already seen in this letter that with that language, John is referring to ordinary Christians in the pew, in the congregation. So this is a responsibility that God lays on every Christian, no exceptions. But of course, uh, before we look at uh, what this involves, we need to start by admitting that the threat is real that it's actually worth bothering with. Um, How do we know that this isn't simply um, a hysterical overreaction by Christian fundamentalists who, quite frankly, ought to know better? How do we know that? Keep a finger in 1 John and turn back to Matthew 7 on page 684 of the paperback Bibles and page 8 of the hardback Bibles. Matthew 7, page 684. Now, I think we may have looked at some of this in the home group last week, but it doesn't hurt to look at it again. Uh, This, as you know, is towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is giving his disciples a portrait of normal Christian experience. This is what it's going to be like for Christians in every generation until Christ returns. So come with me then to verse 15 of Matthew 7. And this is the Lord Jesus, who knows everything, speaking. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now, stay there. Just think about this. According to Jesus... Christians should expect false prophets. It shouldn't surprise us. The reason that we need to have our wits about us is because they will look like the real thing. They will look like real Christians. And at first first sight, you won't necessarily be able to tell them apart from all the other sheep in God's flock. That becomes even clearer, doesn't it, in verse 22, where Jesus is talking about what will actually happen on the day that he returns. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? 
then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Can you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that many of these people will appear to have incredibly successful ministries. Miracles. Big church buildings. Lots of luxury cars in the parking lot. And constantly in demand as speakers at Christian conferences all around the world. But that, says Jesus, doesn't actually by itself mean anything. Uh, Rob Bell uh, was pastor of a church in Michigan in the United States with 10,000 members. I don't know how long it's going to be before we have 10,000 members. Uh, Maybe quite a long time. But he had 10,000 members. He did his theological training at one of the most conservative seminaries in North America and he professed to be an evangelical. In 2011, uh, Time magazine included him in their list of the 100 most influential people on the planet. Two years ago, he hit the headlines when he published a book called Love Wins. And in it, he denied the existence of hell. And that caused quite a stir. But this week, he was in the news again. Apparently, he's just resigned from his church and he's moved to Hollywood where he's teamed up with Oprah Winfrey. In case you didn't know, um, Oprah Winfrey established her own religion ten years ago, rather predictably called O. Uh, Rob Bell no longer attends a formal church. Instead, on Sunday mornings, he goes surfing. Now, in a sense, there's nothing surprising about that. Uh, As we've seen, Jesus told us to expect it. But the question is this. What about those 10,000 people back in his church? I mean, did they see it coming? Did they listen carefully to what he was teaching in order to discern who was really behind it? Or were they simply carried along by the vibe, by the hype, and by the excitement of it all? That's, you see, why John says to you and me this morning, admit the threat Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many, not just a handful, many false prophets have gone out into the world. But then, of course, the question is, well, how do we do it? Well, come back to 1 John, because secondly, John says that once we've admitted the threat... We must apply the test. It's actually the main concern of the rest of the passage. We know that because John begins and ends with almost exactly the same words. Have a look at this. At the beginning of verse 2, he says, this is how you can recognise the Spirit of God. And then at the end of verse 6, he says, This is how we recognise the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Those are kind of verbal brackets. And in between those two statements, John tells us how we can do this by asking two simple questions. The first question that you and I need to ask is, what is this person saying about Jesus? 
You actually need to be asking that question whenever I stand here in the pulpit. Come with me to the end of verse 2. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now I hope you can see how wonderfully, wonderfully practical that is because it goes straight to the main issue. Uh, whether it's uh, in time choosing my successor here at St Barnabas or uh, whether it's appointing somebody to teach children in Sunday school or whether it's you in the bookshop deciding uh, whether to read a particular Christian author, we don't start by asking about their position on baptism uh, or the Sabbath or church governance or roles for women in ministry. I mean, those are important questions and we might want to talk about them later, but we don't start there. No, we start by asking, what does this person say about Jesus? Is it biblical? That's simple, isn't it? We can all do that. We can all do that. Now, of course, the the popular errors in, uh, about Jesus will change from age to age. Um, when John was writing this letter, um, the false teachers believed that Jesus had been born by natural conception. Uh, whether legitimately or illegitimately doesn't really matter. They said he was just a man. And then they said um, that Christ, came upon Jesus when he was baptised and throughout his three years of ministry uh, Jesus was therefore able to reveal certain things about God by his teaching and miracles. But then when Jesus was hanging on the cross Christ left him and so these people said that's why Jesus on the cross cried out my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so they say the person who died on the cross wasn't fully God and fully man. He was just a man. But the false teachers went on and they said, look, don't worry about that. It doesn't actually matter because our salvation doesn't finally depend upon atonement. No, it depends on knowledge, how much you know. And that's why John says here, no, no, the central issue in Christianity is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The person who died on the cross was fully God and fully man. Now, although we don't see that particular error in our generation today, um, our generation nevertheless has invented all kinds of ways of denying the incarnation of Christ and therefore denying the atonement. The most common is the notion that Jesus is um, a higher power that I can tap into in order that he'll give me a better life. So as long as I approach him in the right way, uh, by going to church now and again and maybe singing a few choruses, well then I can expect Jesus to give me a better job, uh, a happier marriage, a sense of purpose in life, and so on. Now, friends, that deception is incredibly dangerous because it is so subtle. 
Because you see, it is generally true that when a couple do decide to follow Christ, they really do often have a happier marriage. And it is also generally true that when a person becomes a Christian, they do discover a sense of purpose in life that they didn't have before. But wonderful as those things are, they are ignoring the central, non-negotiable truth about Jesus according to Scripture. Namely, that you and I have been made in the image of God, that we've rebelled against him, that God's wrath hangs over our heads, but that he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, and that the way that we're reconciled to God, receive eternal life, and live forever in his presence, both in this life and in the life of the world to come, is by trusting the son whom he has given. That is the heart of the gospel, and it is non-negotiable. It's happened in space-time history, it's in the public arena, it depends on eyewitnesses who heard, saw and touched Jesus before and after his resurrection and you've got to come to terms with those facts or you cannot be a Christian. You can't be. And John's message, you see, in verses 2 and 3 is that any teaching that presents a Jesus who is different from what I've just said is not the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Antichrist. So don't listen to it. So that's the first question. What are they saying about Jesus? I have to say that the the second question that John wants us to ask uh, actually took me by surprise. Uh, I think I was expecting something more theological, uh, something rather more profound. But John, you see, has a pastor's heart. He wrote some marvellous books, but he didn't spend his life in a seminary uh, writing complicated theological textbooks. He spent his life pastoring real Christians in real churches. So the second question he gives us is absolutely basic. He says, if you want to know whether a person is a false prophet or not, you need to ask yourself, who's listening to them? What sort of people are they? Now, how do we get there? Well, notice in verses 5 and 6 that John uh, presents a stunning contrast between two different authorities on spiritual things, And these two spiritual authorities draw two totally different audiences. So come with me to verse 5. They, now that is the false teachers, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. So we say, well, tell us, John, um, how can we recognise someone who looks like a godly leader, terrific communicator, but is actually a fake and an imposter? How do we recognise them? And John says, if the world is applauding them, well, that's a sign he may not be quite what he appears. Now, I want us to realise this morning that 
The problem here is not just with the false teacher. The challenge actually lies with the congregation. It's really important that we get this clear in our minds. So keep a finger in 1 John and turn with me to 2 Timothy 4 on page 845 of the Blue Bibles, page 241 of the Hardback Bibles. 2 Timothy 4, page 845 or 241. Now while you're turning there, let me tell you that what's happening here is that uh, Timothy is about to be ordained as the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul is giving him his final briefing. It's a, a passage this that's very special to me and might be to Jan as well because it was used at my ordination service. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now pay attention. They, that is the congregation, the congregation will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and so on. Can you see the point? You see, it wasn't only that the, the false teachers were imposing themselves on unsuspecting Christians. No, no, it was that Paul looked ahead and saw a day when Christians would want a less challenging message, something harmless, something more in keeping with the spirit of the age. They would go looking for it and of course they would find any number of teachers only too willing to provide it. And John says, if the message is coming from the viewpoint of the world, so that people are always comforted and never convicted, always congratulated and never challenged, then that is a sign that the spirit of falsehood is at work. So what's the cure? How do we avoid sliding gradually in that direction? Because it doesn't happen overnight, it's always a gradual slide. We'll come back to 1 John 4 because John tells us about a different authority. A different authority that draws a very different audience. And you'll find this in verse 6. We, that is the apostles, we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. 
Friends, if we want to be discerning and not gullible, if we don't want to hear Jesus saying to us on the last day that we were far too tolerant, we have to devote our energies to the Apostles' teaching. You should expect me to teach it and you should challenge me if I don't. You should read books by people who've studied it carefully and should encourage one another to keep on growing in your knowledge and understanding of it. But John also has a third message for us. It's actually a a wonderful message um, and my prayer as I was writing yesterday afternoon was that you would feel the comfort of this. Because John says that in our battle against false teaching we are to acknowledge the victory, admit the threat. Yes, we've done that. Apply the test. We've done that. Acknowledge the victory. We know John, don't we, as the the great apostle of love but I think it would be no uh, exaggeration to say that he might also be called the apostle of reassurance. And I think verse 4 is probably one of the most beautiful sentences in all of his writings. Look how it begins. You, dear children, are from God. Isn't that lovely? Not, uh, you might be. Not, uh, let's hope so. No, you are from God. The troublemakers who left the churches weren't but you are. And he continues, you have overcome these false teachers. They wanted you to listen to them and their message, but you didn't. Now why not? How did these Christians pull off this amazing victory? Was it because they outsmarted the troublemakers? No, says John, it wasn't that. It's because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And of course he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He only introduced the Holy Spirit right at the end of chapter 3, but that's the point. The Spirit within them keeps them wise, keeps them going in the Christian life, keeps them faithful. There are lots and lots of other spirits calling them away in lots of unhelpful directions.